The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. I'm Margot Landman, Senior Director for Education Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today on the NCUSCR China podcast is James Carter, Professor of History and Director of International Studies at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. Professor Carter is a member of the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program. We will discuss his book, Heart of Buddha, Heart of China, The Life of Tan Xu, a 20th Century Monk. Jay, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today about your book. Thanks so much for having me. The title of your book is intriguing. What do you mean by heart of Buddha, heart of China? Well, it's interesting you ask that. That、um, is really a holdover from the very earliest, very earliest beginnings of the book.、Um, Tan Shu、uh, wrote a number of things,、um, and a lot of them wound up being translated into English, where they became widely used in the United States and abroad.、Um, and one of the first things that he did in that regard was a commentary on the Heart Sutra. So with the Heart Sutra, that sort of lent itself to the notion heart of Buddha, heart of of China,、um, and I think it was important to have both pieces there because whereas he saw himself very much as a Buddhist and as promoting Buddhism,、um, as we may discuss, it really became central to his his career that what he was doing was something that he saw at the heart of the Chinese nation, and so both having both things in the title, I think,、um, while it grew out of this specific reference to the Heart Sutra, it wound up. Really referring to Tan Shu's career at both the center of his religious practice, but also of his nationalist politics. How did you come to write about him? The book is not a conventional biography. It's partly biography, partly history, partly going between the worlds of the religious and the secular. How do you manage to do all of that in such a short volume? I'm glad that you you mentioned that because that's exactly the the motif really that I think is is important about the book is this traveling between worlds.、Um, and in an earlier version of the title, the notion of like travels of Tan Shu was somehow something we wanted to try and, and get at. But it really had this movement between and among among worlds.、Um, so how I came to the to write the book really grew out of of my my dissertation research back. Long ago,、um, but I was in Harbin doing doing research and、uh, came across this temple. And anyone who's been to Harbin knows that what's noteworthy about it is that it's not a very typical Chinese city. It has a lot of、uh, Russian, particularly, but a lot of European and foreign architecture. And this one Buddhist temple, you know, stuck out sort of like a, a sore thumb. And so I became interested in in that temple. While I was there, I got a hold of of Tan Shu's、uh, memoirs, which they were. Uh, making available in in the temple, and then as I began to study his career, I noted that he had traveled to these other places that had large colonial or semi-colonial experiences, and so that got me interested in Tan Shu's story. And then as I began to look further and further into what he'd actually done, this notion of travel seemed central. And then,、um, not only to Tan Shu's career, but in terms of how I came to write about、uh, to write about him,、um, and. When I discovered that he had followers and and students who were, you know, a couple a couple dozen miles away from me from from my home,、um, that notion of traveling between worlds, not just as a historical figure, but also as an author, as a subject, but and as a、um, in many other different ways, this notion of traveling between and among worlds became really really central to the whole book. Your beginning of the book in the Bronx is quite startling. 
I was, I mean, the story that I relate in the introduction to the book is 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 really just how it came to be. I mean, in the time that I turned away from the dissertation that had had this kernel on the Buddhist temple, and I, that I turned back to this as a book that I wanted to write. You know, Google had emerged. I mean, there was no Google when I was started doing the, the first research, and just simply came up. And I had a series of emails where it was revealed that you know not only did Tan Shu have a student, not only was that student still living and living in the United States, but he was in the Bronx, and so that really changed what was possible with the book from being just an academic monograph to being something. You know, as you as you observed. It tries to be a lot of different things, um, and I don't know how well it succeeds at them, but it certainly that was one of the, the goals in writing it, was to have elements of history, elements of biography, elements of even you know, travelogue and, and, and um, kind of autobiography in some ways as well. Mm-hmm. You alluded a little while ago to Tan Xu's nationalism. You write that he thought China's survival as a culture and as a nation depend on its spiritual revival could you talk about what China was facing during Tan Xu's life and how so-called spiritual revival could be key to its cultural and national survival? Sure, and that's something that, that comes up still today a lot. I mean, it, it resonates with a lot of the rhetoric that we hear coming out um, from, from Xi Jinping. Um, Tan Xu was growing up in in a time period when China was just being being not just racked by war, but was really a battlefield for other countries at, at war. So, in his front or backyard, you know, he observed um, a series of rebellions um, and uprisings from the, from the and wars from the Boxers through the Russo-Japanese Wars and the Sino-Japanese War. So he looked at all these different events where foreign powers were were duking it out, or in some cases, inflicting their will upon upon China. And he looked at this, and he saw a very is a very familiar story from that era. So he saw uh, superior weaponry, superior armaments, um, superior tactics of, of Western powers, and of, of also of Japanese powers who had um, who had um, emulated the West in a lot of ways. Uh, and he saw that China was lacking. What he didn't do, and this is why I think Tan Shu falls into a, a particular niche that is often overlooked, is he doesn't come off as a modernizer. He's not saying what we need to do is get rid of traditional China and, and throw everything away. He's also not saying that China needs to retreat into itself and ignore the West. What he says is that the reason the West is superior, and he, he says there's, he has clear evidence that the West is superior because he's seen the way that, that um, Western armies have, have inflicted their will in Northeast China. Um, but what he does say is that it's not because they have better weapons. It's not because they have better tactics. It's because they're more spiritually grounded. It's kind of an interesting turn that he takes. Um, and so he, but he doesn't think that Christianity, which is what he, he sees as being the, the fueling or the fuel for a lot of this Western uh, imperialism, he doesn't see Christianity as a model for China. He thinks that Buddhism um, is the appropriate spiritual model to China. Now, with apologies to folks who study medieval China who will make the argument that, that Buddhism's not even Chinese, um, Tan Xu felt that it was. And so he felt that this would be the, the spiritual principle that would guide China forward. So he didn't want China to go backward. He wanted China to go forward. But he wanted China to go forward comfortable in its own skin. And he felt that its own skin, spiritually speaking, was Buddhism and that that platform would enable, it to, uh, would enable China to compete more effectively with uh, the powers that he saw Um, marching across his his front yard. The issue of spirituality struck me almost by its absence 
he seemed to spend a lot of time in the secular world raising money to build temples. So my first question is, why was there such an emphasis on buildings for a religion devoted to contemplation? Why are the physical structures so important? And do you think, and I don't intend to be disrespectful here, that he was really committed to the religious life, or was he using religion as a means to a different end, the end being strengthening China? Mm-hmm. So a couple of different ways to get at that. Some have to do with the subject, and some have to do with the author. Um, so for one thing, I'm coming at Tan Shu really as a historian, not as a religious studies um, expert. And so in many ways, I felt myself on firmer ground looking at his, his secular activities than than interrogating his, his spiritual practices. So that's, there's probably some bias in there. But I do think, and this is the reason I think Tanju is fascinating as a, as a figure, is that we often hear that Buddhism is not a political religion just for just what you said. It's focusing on the contemplation. If you really go into it in a lot of detail, you're going to get the idea that the, the physical world doesn't really even exist. So how can brick and mortar be at the center of it? Um, I think that for Tan Shu, he felt that, um, again, as a, as a foundation for the Chinese nation, that Buddhism could serve for the strengthening and modernization of China. Um, it would be very difficult to, for me to disentangle what he felt was her, his religious motives and what he felt were political motives. He himself said he was not political, that he was religious. But his actions contradict that. Um, I mean, his actions, he, he worked with political authorities in, in Harbin and in Shenyang and in Qingdao and in, in half a dozen other places, um, very explicitly to promote the Chinese nation. So I, I would be reluctant to say that he wasn't spiritual. I mean, he was a, you know, revered as a Buddhist master, and he had a long career um, um, in that capacity, but it's, I think he's best known for, uh, best remembered for the, the physical structures that he played a role in, in building. So I think that he was doing both, um, and I would, I would, I don't know that I can, can separate the two very effectively. The political issue, it seems to me, really comes to the fore after 37, 38 with the Japanese, and you distinguish between cooperating and collaborating, or did he just do what he needed to do to survive? Um, that was the hardest part of the book to write because there's relatively little, he says relatively little about that period under the Japanese occupation, and I was able to cross-reference some of what he said with other sources, but but not, not a lot. Um, you know, the, the quotation that I use in the book, and it's one that I... I fall back to in a lot of different contexts is the, the, the quotation from, from Václav Havel who says that the, you know, the line between collaboration and resistance doesn't run between people, it runs through them. Um, for Tan Shu, I think he felt that um, he was very explicit. He, he wasn't going to collaborate with the Japanese, but he also wasn't going out of his way to resist the Japanese. I mean, some Buddhist monks took up arms against um, the Japanese invaders. Other Buddhist monks went to Japan and actually became active in promoting um, and promoting Buddhism as part of the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere. Tanshu didn't do either of those things, but he clearly did enough that he was able to operate a, a quite 
successful temple under the Japanese. Um, I'm, I have a hard time putting him into the, colla- into the category of either collaborator or resistor. I don't think he fits either one, um, either one very well. I think what's much more interesting um, are the ways in which he continued to construct his, his agenda, con- continued to advance both Buddhism and Chinese nationalism um, through the war and then coming out, uh, coming out the other side. Beyond the Japanese, he, here's a man who lived in cities with lots of foreign influences, whether the Russians in Harbin or the Germans in Qingdao. You quote an American fellow mm-hmm. in Qingdao, mm-hmm. I think it was, who seemed to be having a great time. Sure. Um, how did he perceive relationships between foreigners and Chinese and between colonialism or semi-colonialism and nationalism? This really, this really speaks to the question of how I came into the project, um, because what, I, what I've written about in other cases and what I'm working on currently all are, are questions that deal with sort of China's relations with the West, uh, although on a personal level, not on a, on a state-to-state level. So the exact question you're asking is one that I try to get at. I think, you know, he wasn't a xenophobe. Um, he felt that... Um, you know, he, he, knew, he knew foreigners, he worked with foreigners. Certainly when he went to Hong Kong at the end of his life, he, you know, he was involved in a community that had regular interaction with, with, with foreigners. Um, but he was very keen in asserting Chinese nationalism and Chinese identity in these foreign contexts. So I think that for him, I think what was most important is that the, the relationship between China and the West could become one that was more, was more equal. Um, he, he clearly saw that China, and I, I say the West, it also includes Japan right, in this context. So whether it's China in, in its relations with Russia or with Japan or with France or with Britain or with the United States, he clearly wanted uh, China to be, um, to be in a better position than it was. And he felt that that could happen through Buddhism and with Buddhism as a spiritual foundation, as a means of of, uh, of moving forward, the thing about the temples that he that he constructed, and he, you know, I, I quote this in, in different contexts, is that he clearly built those city, those temples to be visual symbols, not even symbols, to be, to be visual edifices to represent to show the Chinese people living in these cities that you know you're not in a German colony or a Russian colony. Or in Hong Kong, it doesn't quite work in the same way. But um, in any of these places, that while you may be politically or culturally surrounded by foreigners, remember that you're in China. Like this is China, and we're going to build this Buddhist temple um, as a means of of, uh, of focusing that energy, of focusing that national energy to to go forward. So he he never talks about um, getting rid of the foreigners. He never talks about defeating or battling or, or destroying foreign influences in China. He talks about it much more about building Chinese nationalism and building Chinese culture so that it can better compete with those foreign influences. But he doesn't, he doesn't talk about um, getting rid of those foreign influences, which I think is an important distinction. He comes across in some ways as a very complex man. Um, and it really hit me in two contexts or two key moments in his life. 
One is when he decides that he's going to be a monk and he leaves his wife of 20-odd years and seven children, granted two were married and off in their husband's families. But still, Mm -hmm. he leaves his family in a way that struck me as, if not dishonest, certainly not completely honest. He says he's going to do some errand and then he disappears for years at a time. And then later, lest we think that this was an aberration, mm-hmm. when he's at the monastery in Ningbo and wants to leave because he can't stand it, he doesn't like the climate and he doesn't like the food and he doesn't like the, he can't understand the local language, and he's getting itchy. He wants to go back and build temples. He, dare I say, lies to mm-hmm. his master and again, just leaves. How did he and how do we reconcile this behavior with what I would choose to say is the morality of an upright monk? Or is that simply the wrong way to look at it? Um, well, yes. I mean, you're exactly right. Um, he's you know, if, if moral ambiguity is very fashionable in television and film these days, Tanshi's got it. Um, he, you know, I think he struggles with, with what it means to be human. I mean, not to make too mm-hmm. grand a statement. And I think he's very torn between what his obligations and his commitments and his responsibilities are. Um, so, you know, he exhibits a fair amount of cowardice in a lot of times. And he doesn't confront what he wants to do. Um, or he doesn't confront the people who would be affected by by his decisions. He makes his decisions, and those decisions may or may not be good ones. He, he certainly considers them very carefully, but he doesn't consider them about what the the consequences are going to be um, on other people. So when he when he leaves um, his family, um, he comes to the conclusion that um, that his energies will benefit more people if he goes off to be a monk, and that may well be true. Um, what does that say about the Commitment that he's made in raising raising this family and marrying this woman—that's, you know, that's a that's a really that's a difficult question. He does wrestle with that, but in the end, he says he kind of explains it away. I mean, he just says, "Well, she'll be okay, right?" Um, now, I think it also, and I and I really desperately wish that I had more sources to kind of flesh out the other side of the story. Um, I think it also kind of through the back door underlines, you know, the 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 privilege that it was to be man mm. at that time period because he was able to make all these choices whereas whereas his wife whose name you don't even get um, is really you know she's you know she doesn't have many choices she doesn't have many options now it seems as best we can tell that she's taken care of by the by the community in the um, in Yinko in the in the Buddhist community but we don't the only evidence is indirect that we have for that I mean he goes back and she is there and she's um, you know, working and, and living in the in the in the temple, um, but then when he goes on and leaves his master, so it's not simply that he didn't want to be in this family relationship; that he clearly doesn't handle these sorts of um, he doesn't handle institutions very well, and so he he goes off and leaves again. I I, I don't have an answer, um, and so as I confronted his his story and confronted his life, I mean, there is a lot of wanderlust that's involved in what he's doing, and what he did was certainly 
um, what he did was for was for reasons. I mean, he didn't just do stuff because. Um, I mean, he had he had really complicated and sophisticated reasons, and what he did benefited communities all around China, constructing these temples and also in um, in helping to build and rebuild Chinese communities. Um, you know, last of all in Hong Kong, where he goes and, and collects a lot of Buddhist texts that are uh, in jeopardy after the after the communist takeover. But he's you know he's morally really complicated figure, um, and in some ways the the book is meant to really give his. It, the book, in many ways, is meant to map out 20th century Chinese history through the lens of this man. And 20th century Chinese history is really fraught with all sorts of, of moral ambiguities and missteps and opportunities not taken or or, or opportunities <laughs> taken. Um, and so I think that for, um, for, for Tan Xu, it's often not very satisfying when you, when you see the steps that he took but they are the steps that he took, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that it doesn't fit into a nice narrative arc sometimes. But I'm frustrated at the same time because I can't always answer questions um, like this. I, I felt I was doing well. This one, one aside is when I was, I was giving a talk on one chapter from the book, which was the chapter where he wound up leaving his, his family, and uh, um, one of the, the people in the audience, and she said, "I just want to say that often." Um, you know, biographers are accused of you know, kind of, you know, falling in love with their subject and presenting him in, in such a, uh, uh, in a really positive light. And I want to say that that I don't think this is the case at all because this guy seems like a jerk. <laughs> um, so I took that at least that I was maybe getting at some. Uh, I was at least avoiding the the hagiography trap. Maybe. Right. We are really out of time, but I want to ask one more question, if I may. You mentioned in the introduction some of the parallels between the China of Tan Xu's time and today. Could you describe some of those parallels and what light you think Tan Xu's life and activities shed on issues in contemporary China? Well, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm reluctant to draw too precise a parallel, you know, the, the Mark Twain notion that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme, right? So the same thing doesn't happen over and over again, but we do see parallels. I think Tanshu's basic premise that um, that China was at a disadvantage relative to these other countries, but that if it was going to compete with them effectively, the best way to do that was not by mimicking them. Um, I think that's something that China's leaders have struggled with for, for decades and continue to struggle with. Um, so there's the idea that that China does need to compete in international institutions and in international, um, you know, r- um, rules and regulations and and institutions, but it's not going to do that by simply changing itself into something that it's not. Um, and I think that that's made the the Communist Party really uncomfortable um, because it's been difficult for them to tap into any kind of a spiritual, for lack of a better word. Um, Foundation, because anything that organizes is potentially a threat to its to its legitimacy or its or its power, and so they don't like to embrace those things. So for Tan Shu, he felt that that China couldn't succeed by simply adopting new technologies and new um, material incentives. Whereas today's leaders, that's the only thing that they really want to adopt. You know, they want to avoid spiritual pollution. At the same time. Um, I think that lately we've seen a lot of revival of religion in China, but it's been 
you know, it's been very hamstrung. It's been very limited. It's been very closely monitored. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't know what Tan Xu would would find in today's China that would um, make him very happy. I mean, it is true that um, after he went to Hong Kong, toward the end of his life, he was recruited to go to Taiwan, um, and he was recruited to go to Taiwan, whereas, you know, in the in the particularly in the fifties and the sixties, that Taiwan was trying to in effect be more Chinese than China, and Tan Xu would fit perfectly into that. He felt he was too old to do that at that point, and and he stayed. Um, but I think that the while he would applaud the way that China has become strong internationally, I think that he would uh, lament the fact that the, the, the spiritual foundation that he that he had tried to um, uh, put into place really hasn't hasn't taken. All right, that was wonderful. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me.